One of the rewarding things about doing cell biology, I think, as you know, is, I mean, you can actually, you get that tissue under the microscope, you look at it and you're like, I see what happened. Yeah. You can see this. And not only is it beautiful, can it just be very beautiful in the micrographs and stuff like that, but you can really see it. And in a way, you can kind of touch it and feel its tactile data. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, and thanks for joining me for episode 33 of the Genomics Podcast. Whether you're a first-time listener or you've been listening to our show for a long time, welcome. Our brain is an amazingly complex system of literally billions of brain cells that are called neurons. Now, these neurons are specialized in part because they have these really unique extensions or projections that are called axons and dendrites. And it's these axons and dendrites that allow our neurons to transmit information through neural circuits. The circuits, in turn, are connected themselves by really specialized structures that are called synapses. And our brains have about 500 trillion synapses. Ultimately, all of this complexity and architecture is a result of developmental programs and changes in gene expression. And to discuss the genes and the mechanisms involved in neural circuit formation and brain development, I'm joined by Dr. Joshua Weiner. Josh is professor of biology at the University of Iowa and associate director of the Iowa Neuroscience Institute. His lab uses a really wide range of molecular and especially cell biology techniques to study the brain. And although Josh is primarily a cell biologist, he agreed to sit down with me to share his experiences on recently incorporating next-generation sequencing, or NGS, into his lab to complement his cell biology work. Well, thanks, Josh, for joining us for this podcast. I'm actually really excited about this podcast. We spent a lot of time interviewing people who are genomics experts, and one of the things I'm really interested in your story is that you actually have been in neurobiology for a long time, and you, you have your own lab at the University of Iowa, and you've been studying neurobiology for a number of years, and you just recently got involved into NGS. And for those listeners who are out there who are interested in getting into NGS but have not gotten into it, I think this will be really informative because this will be a scientist's view of the status of getting into it and how you do that. But before we get into the discussion of NGS, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got involved in studying the brain and the biology of the brain? Yeah, sure. I think I first got interested in the brain in high school, believe it or not. I took advanced placement psychology class, which was, I think, the first year they offered it, because I'm old and they didn't do this when I was in high school till the end. That really got me interested in, at least in the mind, if not in the brain. And this is, was a time when there were not really neuroscience undergraduate majors. I mean, if you went to college, as I did at Northwestern in 1988, you majored in psychology right. or you would major in biology and maybe try to do some brain research at some point. So I majored in psychology and I think maybe halfway through my undergraduate career when I was studying cognitive neuroscience, I realized that what I really wanted to do was, was molecular neuroscience. And I didn't really have a lot of background in it. So I was able, thankfully, to get into the neuroscience PhD program at the University of California, San Diego. And then I did uh, postdoctoral work in the lab of Joshua Sains at Washington University. Which is where I met you, actually. Exactly. 
Josh's lab was probably somewhat more cutting edge in terms of the technology being used at the time. And so I got more into mouse genetics, making transgenics, making knockouts, and then using those, particularly combinatorial genetics, like with Crelox, to make restricted mutants or restricted overexpression models so that we could study how genes are actually affecting the brain in vivo. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of work that I've been doing in my own lab at the University of Iowa since 2004. I share sort of the same background as Mm -hmm. you, not exactly the same. And I do remember many, many years ago when I did my PhD in neuroscience, the one thing I liked about it was there was no definition at the time. There was no set of tools or skills that everybody would agree on as a neuroscientist. And I think in some ways we're kind of approaching that point again where Mm -hmm. tools that we thought were Mm -hmm. neuroscientist tools are changing again. I think that's true. I will say in many ways I'm really more of a cell biologist than even a neurobiologist. We just published a paper on limb development, you know, because I feel like we had a phenotype in a mouse that involved really interesting limb phenotypes. And Mm -hmm. while we're focused on the brain, we thought this was too interesting not to publish and let people know about. To me, I'm interested in the development of the organism, and I'm very much focused on brain. But if there's interesting developmental or cell biological issues that come up, people in my lab certainly get interested in them, too. I know your work involves a gene family called the gamma protocadherins, and we also discussed a little bit about a gene called... I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but is it called Akirin? Yeah, Akirin 2. Yeah. Akirin 2. So can you describe a little bit about the protocadherin family, how it impacts brain biology, and then this Akirin 2 gene family as well? So there are about 60 genes in three clusters on a single site in the mammalian genome. So in the mouse, this is chromosome 18, and in humans, it's uh, 5Q31. It's about one megabase in size, and within that, there are three gene clusters called protocadherin alpha protocadherin beta and protocadherin gamma, and they're basically just arrayed in tandem with very little in between them, a couple of genes in between, but for the most part, not much. And these encode over 60 distinct cadherin-like cell adhesion molecules that have distinct interaction specificity, and we think also distinct cytoplasmic signaling. So it's a very complicated group of molecules. When I was a postdoc, I actually kind of serendipitously was able to start working on one of the three clusters, the gamma protocadherins, and it turns out to be fortunate for me just because that's the one where if you knock out that cluster, the mouse dies at birth, and it has very severe <laughs> effects when you disrupt this gene family. Mm-hmm. The alpha and the betas, not so much. I mean, there are interesting phenotypes uh, in some neurons in the alpha. There's some redundancy in those genes. There must be some redundancy in them. And they certainly, they work together because they can actually all interact in cysts and they can form these large macromolecular complexes. And so for whatever reason, it seems, we don't really still understand it, but it seems that the gammas are absolutely necessary. They've got to be part of these complexes. Okay, got it. So, so we were fortunate in the sense that we had interesting phenotypes to follow up on immediately. And so we've shown several roles for these in the regulation of synaptogenesis and the regulation of the arborization of dendrites, the input side of the neuron, these branches that form that receive synapses, and also in some subsets of uh, cells in terms of their axonal projections, their output side of the neuron, Mm -hmm. and uh, also in neuronal survival. It depends, you know, which cell you're looking at. So this comes back to this idea of using Crelox and using conditional mutations. You know, some of these phenotypes that we've identified, we would not have seen unless we were able to do that. Because again, if you knock all of them out, the mice die at birth and you can't really get very far. Not much you can do with that. Yeah, the brain is fairly immature at birth and so there's really not too much to do. So, you know, while my lab has utilized genomics in the sense of making knockouts and transgenics and making these mouse models, most of our downstream analysis has really been looking at tissues, doing immunohistochemistry. Right, I wanted to ask you about that. You're generating transgenic mice and, and looking at that. So describe a little bit what kinds of technologies you're applying. What are you using? 
using in your lab at the moment? We tend to do a little bit of a cycle in my lab where we'll generate some mouse models. We'll get the in vivo phenotypes by looking at the intact tissues or, you know, making sections of the intact tissues so in the brain itself. Yeah, microscopy, vibrotome sections, cryostat sections, immunohistochemistry, some tracing of neurons using genetic methods, such as the mice made in the Sains lab. We also use traditional Golgi staining and silver staining for dyeing cells. And So this is hardcore cell biology stuff. Yeah, kind of cell biology and neuroanatomy. And we do also couple that then because it takes a long time to generate these mice. And I also have a lot of graduate students and even undergraduates in my lab who don't have time to wait around nine months for, a for, mouse nine, right, for mouse matings. What we try to do is we try to use the phenotypes in the mice to generate hypotheses that we can then pursue in cell culture to get at mechanisms. So we use a combination of cultured neurons, primary neurons from the cortex or from the hippocampus, and also cell lines like HEK cells or COS7 cells or any number of cell lines where we can express in those cells, tagged proteins do knockdowns, knockdown and rescue with the various truncated proteins to try to identify parts of the protein that are important. So we kind of have this cycle back and forth. We use some immunoprecipitations, biochemistry, pull-downs to find interactors, and molecular cell biology techniques in vitro in order to get at mechanisms. And then we try to test the hypotheses about those mechanisms in vivo again with another round of mouse. Right. And we just keep doing that. I think a lot of those techniques are probably familiar to most of our listeners. And the one thing I didn't hear in there is next-gen sequencing. <laughs> right. or yes. yeah. Yeah. And so what I'm really interested in, what is it that drove you to incorporating an NGS approach into your lab? What were you trying to understand that you couldn't get at with your traditional cell biology approaches? And this is something that I intimated before. I mean, actually, we're not using these approaches for this protocadherin project at the moment. Right. So there are a number of labs that are studying really interesting things about this genomic locus, how the expression of individual isoforms, genes in there are controlled. It's very complicated, controlled by methylation. It's controlled by complex chromatin architecture. So mm -hmm. people are using high C and 4C and things like this to determine that. So what led us to work in NGS, particularly right now RNA-seq, was a different project <laughs> where we got interested in this nuclear protein called Acurin-2. Mm -hmm. There's really not that much known about this, uh, this protein. It's a small protein in the nucleus that we know regulates gene expression in some non-neuronal cell lines and appears to do so by interacting with chromatin remodeling machinery and at least some transcription factors. So it may be kind of a bridge between a transcription factor, which is binding at a promoter, and then the chromatin remodeling machinery. And as usual, our interest was really driven by the phenotype that we saw when we deleted this gene in the developing brain. Right. And we deleted it with a line active in the early cerebral cortex, and these mice simply don't have a cortex. Really? Yeah, they basically just don't develop a cortex. because at all. Uh, at all. Because very early on in neurogenesis, when the Cree is active, it knocks out the gene, and the progenitors seem to aberrantly differentiate in neurons early, too early, and then just all die. And so you're basically just left with, with no cortical tissue there. And so we published that. How do those mice do just out of <laughs> Well, it's funny, actually. That's actually ironic. I mean, I, just naively, I guess I you know, would, would have expected the mice to die right. shortly after birth. And most of them do die at birth, although we have had three or four who survive. Without a cortex. Without a cortex. And they survive you know, up to three or four weeks, I think, was the wow. oldest. And they just sit on a piece of food and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I guess that kind of makes sense, right? There's not a lot of control, you know, um, not a lot of executive control over the basic urges. So because this protein, Acurin-2, we know it regulates gene expression, 
I mean, the obvious thing to do since we were the first ones to look in the brain, so there really had been no information about the brain. There's a very small number of papers on this at all. We thought the, one of the obvious things to do was to do RNA-seq, to actually say, okay, in these knockout neural progenitors, and now we've used other Cree lines to knock out in glia postnatal astrocytes and postnatal neurons. And we're asking in all of these different populations now using RNA-seq, what is the suite of genes that is misregulated, dysregulated when we remove Kirin-2? And that will help identify, hopefully, some of the downstream targets of a Kirin-2 and its partners. But what's been really useful so far is the pathway analysis, um, just looking at the GO terms that, you know, the gene ontology terms that come out of that. And particularly in terms of the progenitors where we already published this paper without the RNA-seq, we published it first and we did it afterwards. It's confirmed our interpretation of what was happening because you actually see, you see neuronal differentiation genes go up and genes associated with progenitors go down. So it matches the phenotype. It matches what we thought was happening. You know, we were pretty sure, but it was hard to tell because it's happening very fast within a day or two after the knockout. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't have a lot of tissue to work from a lot of time. But in that case, just looking at the Go terms was really helpful in confirming what we thought was happening. And then uh, we're, of course, reminding individual genes from that and confirming them with qPCR and right. thinking about pathways and ways that we can follow that up. So obviously, you know, you, you don't have a background in NGS, so you had to do some research in terms of basically where do you start? What do you do first? So what I'm wondering is when you were contemplating, I'm going to try my hand at NGS or not, what are the sources of information that you went to? I know we were talking earlier about these one-week-long intensive courses <laughs> right. out there for NGS, but right. those are not really accessible to someone who's a full-time professor. So how did you get your information? What was the information that convinced you to make that jump? How did you decide that there was value in this approach for you? Right, so primarily talking with colleagues. So we have a strong group of genomics people here at the University of Iowa in my department as well. So this is a Department of Biology, where we have a lot of people doing genomics in, in Drosophila, in yeast, in C. elegans, as well as in, as in mice. And so we have a lot of people doing a lot of different approaches, people here teaching bioinformatics classes. So, you know, I, I was able to talk with them and get some advice on stuff that they had done. I also had a collaborator in this department, this is Dr. John Manick, who has done a lot of bioinformatics and was willing to work with us to help analyze some of the data. To me, that was the hardest thing. So, right. I mean, the first thing I did was, you know, just look into the technology. How much does it cost? Where do we have it done? And how did you find that out? By asking around, and people here use the Iowa Institute for Human Genetics, IHG. And I, I know you, you're talking with Dr. Richard Smith, who's the director of that. And so I found out we had consultations with them. We okay. found out that they do this, and they explained uh, some of the parameters and, and what the cost is and what we want to consider about the samples. So I got a lot of advice from that. And I was mentioning this before when we were chatting, I think what was surprising to me, of course, I'd read papers, you know, where people sure, pre- yeah. present the data and I understand what you can do with it. But, you know, having never actually done it before, I just yeah. didn't really know what's involved in preparing the libraries and things like this. I come from an era where to make a cDNA library, <laughs> you know, Paul's laughing because he knows, but you know, to make a cDNA library or do a, a differential hybridization screen or something was just a massive effort. Yeah. It was really hard. Half the time it wouldn't work. You, you really needed like incredible expertise to do these things. Right. Uh, cloning was, anytime you had to clone, you would just <laughs> break out in a cold sweat, you know. Now, there were always you know, those people in the lab yeah, who were you know, really the, good the, at it. The students in my lab out. now, you know, they clone stuff. It's like, you Isn't know, crazy? And, and I just yeah. think like, you know, you guys don't know what it was like <laughs> <laughs> back when we couldn't get recombinant attack, you know. <laughs> anyway. 
you know, it was a surprise to me to discover that, in fact, really mostly what we needed to do is just prepare high-quality RNA, which we knew how to do for other purposes. I mean, I'd done hundreds of northern blots <laughs> back in the day, so I, I knew about that. And, wow. And, yeah, thanks. So For those listening, uh, we, we will post in the show notes what a northern blot is. Yeah. Uh, actually, we won't. Um, <laughs> but, no, so like, that gets back to my my other question is, you've already highlighted a little bit, you've, you've indicated that you had this perception of NGS before you got into it. Yeah. Talk about what was that perception of NGS before you started. Now that you've kind of got into a little bit, how has your perception of it changed? It seemed very complicated. It seemed like, you know, to me, again, from the outside, just having not thought about it much, it'd be a lot of pitfalls. And, you know, maybe it would be difficult to do with graduate students. I mostly have grad students in my lab and, and one postdoc. So I have that kind of lab. And so I wasn't sure whether we would have the expertise. But it turned out that, you know, again, once we prepare the high-quality RNA, we actually have, thankfully, within my department, the Carver Center for Genomics, which is a small facility that actually handles Sanger sequencing and has instrumentation that we can utilize in the department. And we have someone there who's very good at making these libraries right. and have been working with groups in the department for a long time before NGS when people were doing microarrays and things right, like this. Right. I discovered that there are kits for making these libraries, you know, like just like well, everything. That, it sounds trivial, but yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. it's important. And, and that, you know, is actually pretty streamlined. And that, and that really the primary issue then for me shifted into the analysis, right. as I think you know, right? Yeah. That's really the issue these days. Getting quality sequence, I think using Illumina platforms at this point is pretty well understood and everyone is able to generate data. Yeah. And it's a question of how you mine those data. My biggest kind of worry about getting into this, this is what kept me from doing NGS for other stuff, was I just, I'm not really a big data guy. You know, right, I, mean, I'm, right, yeah. I mean, I didn't get a PhD in math and I didn't get a PhD in, you know, informatics because I, mean, I don't really like that stuff. Right? But that leads to the next question about bioinformatics. How did you approach that? What I really didn't want is just to generate a ton of data that we just never end up using because we can't wade through it. One of the rewarding things about doing cell biology, I think, as you know, is, I mean, you can actually, you get that tissue under the microscope, you look at it and you're like, I see what happened. Yeah. You can see this. And not only is it beautiful, can it just be very beautiful in the micrographs and stuff like that, but you can really see it. And, and in a way, you can kind of touch it, feel it's tactile data. And that's not always the case with molecular biology or with bioinformatics. And so we were worried about waiting through that. So in the initial experiments we did, as I said, we worked with a, a collaborator in the department um, who has done a lot of this. And so they took the raw data and they there was a graduate student who was a bioinformatics, informatics type graduate student who had trimmed the reads and did the mapping and was able to get us these annotated gene lists that we worked with them back and forth. We, you know, we asked if we could modify the parameters or, you know, increase the statistic significance level so that we could kind of narrow it down to a smaller group of genes that we thought were the most significantly changed. So we worked back and forth with them, but they really did the technical part of that and uh, presented us with these genes, gene lists of things that were up and down. And then my lab has taken that and used quantitative PCR to confirm subsets of these genes that we think are the most interesting based upon the process of cortical development. For example, right. genes that are known to be implicated in these processes. When we were talking before, I know that you mentioned that you, you're interested in and maybe trying ATAC-seq at some point. So obviously yeah. the NGS hasn't scared you away so much that you're <laughs> you're abandoning it, you're doubling down yeah. on your NGS. It's a little bit out of our comfort zone in the sense that, you know, we're, we are not transcription factor people or transcription people, but Kieran, too, has really interesting roles in progenitors, in 
postmitotic neurons, and in, in glia. And so we're really interested in these phenotypes, which involve neurodegeneration, disruption of differentiation programs. So these are all things that are that are in our wheelhouse, yeah. right? But what's really not in our wheelhouse is, is transcription itself, you know, doing analysis of transcription factors and how they regulate the genome or chromatin remodeling. Right. We're really trying to get a grasp on that because of the nature of the protein. So ataxic, you know, initially we thought about doing ChIP-seq because people have done chip for a Kirin-2. There aren't great antibodies, unfortunately. They're no. okay. I mean, there are antibodies. But I think for looking broadly at how is a Kirin-2 regulating differentiation and function of these neurons in glia, we'd really like to, to get a broader view. And so we could do ChIP-seq, but because a Kirin-2 is not itself a DNA binding protein, it may indirectly regulate a number of promoters and a number of genes right. that it's not physically sitting at, or at least not physically sitting at in a way that can be captured with chip. Right. And so ATAC-seq has the promise of actually just telling you, well, you know, what's open and what's not, which genes are being active and which are not mm -hmm. across the genome. And I think that actually may be more interesting information for us. So we're still just looking into it. We haven't done it yet. I right, mean, but, right. you know, we're looking into what the part that we'll need to do, of course, which is, you know, preparing <laughs> the DNA. What are the best partners to work with? You know, there's a lot of companies that do it. There's mm -hmm. a lot of academic centers that do it. Right. And that's what we'll be looking at is where to, to utilize these platforms. I'm sure some of our listeners are not genomics experts, and they're people sort of in a similar position to you. They have research questions, and they want to understand. They've heard about NGS. They want to know, is a lot of this hype? Is it is it actually really useful? So pretend you're talking to someone like that. I think NGS is cool. I have no idea how to implement in that in my lab or whether it's worth it. What would be your advice to those people? A couple things. One, following my own path, I think we made the right decision in not jumping into it with the Gamma Proto-Cadherin project initially, right. because I, I really don't think that it would have given us answers that we couldn't have gotten in a more straightforward way. Right. Yeah. So really examine the question and don't jump on it because it's the hot thing. Right. Now. I mean, it's not, you know, it's been hot for a long time. It's yeah, not even yeah, that yeah. new anymore, right? So, you know, it's, you're already past that part. <laughs> I mean, there certainly is a push for it. When I review grants and stuff. I mean, there's definitely a push for that. People are really trying to include some component of that. And I understand why that's true. And I think big data can be fantastic. I think it also can just be a lot of stuff that, again, it's very difficult to wade through and get, you know, the weed from the chaff. And right. so I would use it for the best projects that really fit it. And again, I think this Akiran 2 project came up and that's why we went for it, because that's what this protein does. So it's a natural fit for looking at the downstream consequences. Finding a partner yeah. <laughs> is important. If you know how to do this basic molecular biology stuff, really what it comes down to is finding a partner that is either a facility at the university or there are actually a lot of companies. So I did canvas a lot of uh, companies mm -hmm. that offer these services. And in the end, we haven't yet utilized a commercial source, a company to do that. But you know, there are a lot of them out there with pretty good track records who will help prepare the libraries or help do the, or just do the sequencing for you if you prepare the libraries and, and also help with bioinformatics. But it's really good to talk to people who are actually doing this uh, for a living all the time. They can really break down a lot of the myths. You know, people will tell you, well, you need to do this. Well, no, you, you don't need to do this if you're looking for this particular issue, right? Or what kind of paired end reads do you really need to do? How long do they need to be? What's the best genome build to map to right now? You know, they, they have a lot of this on the ground experience. But I mean, I think ultimately it's just going to be like, you know, like everything it's a tool, else. Right? Yeah, it's a tool. Like we were talking about, it used to be like a big deal to clone a gene, you know. Right, I remember. Yeah. You could publish a paper by just cloning a gene. I did. I sequenced a 4.6 KB gene manually in both directions as wow. a graduate student, and it just took forever with manual sequencing yeah. gels, you know. Yeah. I have these conversations with my students now, and it's like, you know, back in my day. What I'm hearing from you is, you know, the NGS approaches 
it's basically a tool. It's a powerful tool. And kind of look and see if that's the right tool for your scientific questions, just like you'd approach anything else. I mean, microscopy, mm-hmm. whatever. Just make sure that's the right tool for you. And then... Yeah. And so again, I think there's two reasons to do something like RNA-seq, right? So there are labs who are simply interested in, and these are particularly the labs that we talked about doing single cell stuff, right? right? Yeah. How variable is the transcriptome from one neuron to the next? Yeah. How does it vary over time? You know, how does it vary in a disease model or something? That's a whole other issue. That's really asking about the global regulation of genes and how they vary. Those are fundamental questions. Yeah. That's a great research question that is not my research question. So what we're trying to do, though, is generate hypotheses, okay? So if you knock out a gene, you get a dead mouse, or you get a mouse with some defect, that's really good. That's interesting. That tells you that this gene is important, but you really don't understand the molecular mechanisms involved. So how can we get at this? Again, for a Kirin too, because it regulates genes, the way we're getting at this is looking at which genes it regulates. Yeah. So we're trying to do is pull out what we think are the most interesting candidates from those and generate hypotheses about how a Kirin 2 acts. Is it actually physically binding some of these genes, maybe? Is it binding whatever the upstream factor is, you know, so the transcription factor that regulates those genes? That's one of the interesting bioinformatics things that we've done with the help of another lab is you can look at the set of genes that are regulated and you can filter out the genes that are all regulated by transcription factor X. So maybe a Kirin 2 binds to transcription factors. We know that. We don't know which one's in the brain. Maybe it's transcription factor X. Maybe they bind physically. From the NGS data, we might actually go do some co-IPs. We might go do some biochemistry. We may not even, you know, primarily do more genomics. We might go back and use that. For me, that's the interesting thing about talking to you is that you don't have to use this as a tool in your research. You don't have to become a quote-unquote NGS lab. You can use it as a tool to answer fundamental questions and that will inform your research and move you in another direction. Yeah, I think of it as a hypothesis generator, basically. Thanks, Josh, for really shedding light on how you got involved in NGS, some of the pitfalls and some of the benefits. I really appreciate it. I think our listeners are really going to appreciate your frank view on it. And thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you very much. I really enjoy the podcast. You know, as scientists, we're pretty comfortable talking about our work and our areas of expertise, but we're a lot less comfortable talking about areas outside of our expertise. So I'm really exceptionally grateful to my good friend Josh for discussing NGS and his recent experiences incorporating an NGS approach into his cell and neurobiology lab. You might think that NGS is impossibly complicated for you or your lab or your research questions. But like Josh, I think you'd be surprised at how easy and streamlined NGS can be. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Tanu Esko. Deputy Director of Research at the Estonian Biobank of the University of Tartu. We'll be discussing actions, plans, and visions of Estonia in enabling personalized healthcare through genomic profiling here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>